just north of Castle Rock, in an area called Castle Pines, is uh, the most prestigious golf course in the state of Colorado. The story goes that there was a Remax tycoon who asked to join a local country club in Denver, and they said to this Remax tycoon, I'm sorry, we don't have enough room. It's all full. He said, okay, I see what's going on here. So he bought this land and he built his own golf course called Sanctuary Golf Course. And there's two members at this golf course, him and his wife. Okay, so there are two ways to get on this golf course, invite only. There's several charity events throughout the year, some different ways you can get invited, and weddings. So we knew we had no chance of ever playing golf at this place. But one of Aubrey's co-workers had been saving for years to get married at this golf course. And we got invited. We were so excited. We got to see what the country club was like. We were going to get to go check it out. So um, they saved, I am told, over $50,000 to have their wedding at this country club. This was over 10 years ago. So by today's inflation numbers, it would be $150,000 to have a wedding at this country club. Now the wedding was amazing. The views were spectacular. It was a huge wedding with a giant celebration. Four course meal, full DJ. I mean, anything you could expect at any wedding. They had it at this wedding. But beyond this, the couple seemed to be so in love. I don't think I've ever seen a couple so expressive and caring for each other uh, in the wedding. The, the ceremony seemed to be poetic, genuine, beautiful. But above all things, things, two things stuck out to me. It was the only wedding I had ever been to where God was never mentioned. In fact, in their wedding vows to each other, they had a line that said that their commitment to each other was not out of any religious duty. Uh, there was a feeling amongst this couple that they were saying that they were beyond that, that they didn't need religion for their love. Their love was just going to sustain itself on its own. The second thing that stood out to me was another line in their vows to each other. See, I'm used to the traditional ones, for richer or for poor, for better or for worse, for sickness and in health. And they replaced those lines. That line was replaced with the words, for, for so long as love shall last. For so long as love shall last. I've thought about these words a lot since then. As long as love shall last. Think about those words as we continue our series. We're continuing our series in the Sermon on the Mount. We are now three weeks into the series, which means we are in the heart of the sermon, not just uh, physically where we're at in the text, but uh, spiritually in what Jesus is saying and what's going on here. Jesus is showing us how to live the heart of the law, not just the letter of the law. And I warned you last week, and I'm going to warn you again. These are some of the hardest teachings ever taught in the history of the world. Last week was difficult, but this week is going to be even more difficult as we learn to live this good life that Jesus offers. So today, I start with a parental warning. 
Today we will start with romantic relationships, with sex, with lust, and more than anything, we will look at our selfish desires. I will be operating under the Christian ethic that sex is a good thing and love are a good thing. Since the beginning, God thought that it was not good for us to be alone, and he has given us a partner in life. So if you don't trust me on this, just turn to Song of Songs in your Bible. If you get bored during the sermon, read through that. It'll keep you awake. We'll all know that's what you're reading because you'll be blushing as you read it. And while sex is good, we all know that sex can and often does go wrong. And in our culture, it has not just gone wrong. It has gone really, really wrong. Today's culture operates under the, the ethic that might be described as sexual freedom. And I wonder how free that really is. The belief is that as long as two adults are consenting, oh, it's fine. It's just biology. It's just physical. That's all there really is to it, right? We can be scrolling through social media, we can be watching television, and all of a sudden thrown at us are images that are nearly pornography. The access to pornography has never been easier in the history of the world. At any moment, someone told me at their church every Sunday, they have two people that get online and look at pornography during church every Sunday. How crazy is that? Things have gone really wrong. I think they've gone so wrong, and they were going wrong in Jesus' day, that Jesus was going to address this. Jesus found it important enough to place it in his sermon, and if Jesus is going to put it in his sermon, I think we need to study on this topic for just a little bit. So pray with me as we get started. God, we come to you in a culture that seems to be obsessed with sex. The lusts of the flesh are forced in front of us without warning or consent. So today we seek to learn a different way to live, God. A life with more value and purpose and meaning. So today I beg of you for your spirit to turn our eyes away from the desires of this world and that we may fix our eyes on Jesus so that we can see and follow this life that Jesus is offering. So to that end, pour through me the gift of preaching that these ways of Christ would be formed in our hearts. Turn with me as we pick up, in Jesus' name, amen. Turn with me as we pick up in Matthew chapter 5. We're going to start on verse 27. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your left hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body going into hell. So last week we looked at number six of the Ten Commandments about thou shall not murder. But what we came to realize last week, what Jesus was saying is, you can't murder anyone. It's really hard to if you're never angry with them. It's the preventative way to never have to worry about murdering someone. We're on the seventh command now in the Ten Commandments. You shall not commit adultery. 
And this week, Jesus takes the exact same approach as he did last week. You can't commit adultery if you never lust after another person. Have you ever heard the phrase that when the curtains are closing, it's too late to make that decision on adultery? Adultery doesn't start at that moment. It starts way beyond that, way before that. And so Jesus says, in fact, just lusting after someone is the equivalent of committing adultery. And this is an incredibly high standard. Why would Jesus even think it is possible for anyone to hold this standard? If you've been doing our daily Bible reading, you've gone through the patriarchs and oh my goodness, the sexual sin of the patriarchs in Genesis is astounding. They didn't come close to living this out. And so I think to unpack and start to see what Jesus is trying to teach us and how he's calling us to live this out is we have to look at a second for lust. What is lust? Lust, lust is all about what we would call spiritually as the flesh or what we might say secularly as the physical. The deepest sin attached to lust it is, is that is it is the ultimate use of another person is a way of objectifying them for our own desires. It is the ultimate act of selfishness. Truthfully, when it comes to lust, the other person doesn't matter at all. They are just seen as a means to fulfill your own personal desires. Oftentimes, that objectification of another is a violation of their fundamental dignity and self-worth. Jesus is trying for us to see others as People of great worth and great value, not just objects for our own selfish gain. So one of C.S. Lewis's buddies was a writer named Sheldon Van Aken. He had this phrase that I think speaks to what I'm trying to describe here. He said, when you have a new car, the first thing you should do with a new car is you, could, you should take that car out, you should get a hammer, and you should put the first dent in it yourself. Why? He says because it teaches you that cars and things are to be used and not to be loved. But the opposite of this is true as well. The bigger meaning that he's trying to show in this phrase is that people are things to be loved. They're human beings to be loved and not objects just to be used. See, lust is all about the quality of the heart. About, it's, a, it's how we see others. So instead of objectifying another person, it's about seeing other people with dignity beyond your own selfish desires. And can you see how the world's ethic of this has gone entirely wrong? Living with this view of, oh, it's just physical, it's just uh, sex, it's just biology, is just another way to devalue other people. It's to join in a relationship that says, oh no, we're only using each other for our own selfish desires. There's nothing more going on here. It leads to very transactional relationships where people use each other over and over again to fill each other's needs. There's actually an app for this called Tinder where these things take place. But as Christians, deep down, we know it's not just physical. 
That's not what's going on here, that, that there is something intimate, relational, emotional, but beyond that, there is something spiritual on a deeper level happening when two people come together. It's described in Scripture as the two literally becoming one flesh. They are united together, and in the context of a marriage, it is the most beautiful, amazing thing. And those of you reading along in Song of Songs right now are getting a picture of that. And so Jesus is so serious about this. He's so serious that we should not lust that he uses this crazy metaphor. If your eye is causing you to stumble or your arm's causing you to stumble, dig them out, cut them off, get rid of it. This is gruesome imagery here. Is Jesus calling us to live like mighty Python in the Holy Grail? Are we walking around to tell each other, oh, it was only a flesh wound, right? Like, is that what our life should be like? Everyone. I mean, rarely do you get just about everyone to agree. Almost everyone agrees. Jesus is using hyperbole here. Jesus is saying, you want to know what destroys your life worse than gouging out an eyeball, chopping off a limb? You want to know what's worse than that? Affairs. Affairs screw up. Families, multiple ends of extended parts of families, they hurt churches, they hurt communities. That is how damaging they are. They are worse than losing a limb. But let me take this a step further because there are, have been on occasions adolescents who have taken this very seriously while struggling in life. In Ed Dobson's book, A Year Living with Jesus, he tells the story of one such incident. A student who came to him after a lecture. This young man only had one eye. He was wearing an eye patch because he quite literally plucked out his own eye. Dobson was blown away. He had never met anyone like this. He had heard myths about these kind of people. And he didn't know how to interact, what to say to this person. But he didn't have to. What he heard blew him away. The young man said... He followed what Jesus said literally and plucked out his eye. And now he was struggling, lusting with the one good eye he had. See, the heart of what Jesus is saying here, all of this comes back to the heart, right? Is we have to change the way we look at people. Living the kingdom life shows us on the Sermon of the Mount that we need to see people a different way. People are fellow human beings created in the image of God. And so they are worthy of our respect and dignity and honor. They're not just objects to fulfill our own desires. Here's the best dating advice I give to teenage boys. I say, hey, you want some girls to like her? You treat them with dignity. Treat them with respect. Because you can go down to the high school and middle school and you can see how girls are treated sometimes. And you do the opposite of that, oh man, girls are really going to like you and appreciate you because you see them for more than just their physical appearance. So the Sermon on the Mount doesn't just stop here. This would be enough. This is, this is a very hard teaching. But Jesus actually takes it a step further. Jesus is going to talk about divorce. And so before we can hear what Jesus has to say about divorce, we need to understand the context of divorce back then. Divorce took pl place back then, but it functioned a little differently than it did today. And so that's what I want us to look at before we see this text. 
Uh, divorce back in Jesus' day was really just about a matter of paperwork, of filing the right paperwork. As long as a proper certificate was given in the divorce, a divorce could happen for any reason. It's actually one of the laws in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. It looks like this. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house. There's a catch here. Maybe you noticed who this law is talking to and you will notice in a second who Jesus is addressing. Jesus is only speaking to one gender here. In the patriarchal society of Jesus' day, the only person functionally who could get a divorce was the male. That was it. There was a commonly held worldview law that they followed that came from Rabbi Hittel was his name. Um, his teaching was referred to as the house of Hittel. He taught that a man could divorce his wife if he displeased her in any way. Okay, his teachings even went so far to say that even something as trivial as burning the dinner. This is the exact interpretation of the law. Christmas vacation. It happened to be the male there that burned the dinner on this one, but side note. So imagine with me. Imagine with me. You're a wife living in Jesus' day. Could you imagine the anxiety that you had to live with every day? That for any reason, if your husband wanted to, it could all be over. That you had to live in fear of pleasing him in every single way, or it was done. But not only was it just like done, the marriage done, this was your source of stability. This was your source of income. You and your family are on the streets. What are you going to do to survive and get in? And literally, quite literally, the practice then was your husband could trade you in like one of those cars and trade you in for a newer model. Knowing this background, knowing what was going on here, let's continue on with these two verses of what Jesus has to say. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. That's what we just talked about. But I tell you, that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, knowing this context and hearing these words, do you see how these two verses are some of the most liberating verses in all of Jesus' teachings? Jesus is saying that wives and children are not things. They are people with value and should be treated appropriately. Jesus is breaking down and calling out an entire system of injustice that was hurting more than half of the society. Yet Jesus does give an exception. 
If they are unfaithful, if they don't keep their covenant to each other, then it is reasonable to dissolve the marriage. However, what Jesus is saying here is marriage is a commitment on both parties to work together to invest in the relationship. Now, there's this weird part in here. Anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. What is Jesus getting at with this? Well, He's trying to get rid of all the petty excuses that these men were using in the society to end these marriages. He's trying to get rid of this cycle of injustice. So therefore, if you just marry someone because she, or divorce someone because she burnt your dinner last night, that is not legitimate. And if you're the guy that says, oh, okay, well, I'll marry her, then you are just perpetuating this endless cycle of broken marriages and broken relationships. From Jesus' view, false divorces, no matter how religious and legal the leaders might say they are, they just go on to lead to more adultery. Rather, Jesus has a different option for us. We are to join in God's work in restoring healthy and loving relationships with our spouses, with each other, with the world. So I think David and Bathsheba are maybe one of the best case studies because it hits at everything Jesus is saying here. Second Samuel uh, 11 is where this takes place if you want to read up on it later. It all starts off when the scripture tells us it was the time of year when kings went to war. It's the heart of it. Because the heart of it is David's selfish heart. When he should be out fighting for his country, taking care of his people, he's sitting back in the castle, living it up, taking selfishly from them, indulging instead of serving. And he's the only one in the castle. The highest view over the entire city, he can see all over the city. And there happens to be Bathsheba. A woman trying to get some privacy somewhere to bathe herself. And he could have honor for her. He could have dignity for her. He could look away. He could say, this is one of my soldier's wives. I'm just going to go back inside for a while. I'm going to get a view on the other side of the castle. But that's not David's choice. No, no, no. Selfishly, he takes more than a second look. He looks in. He objectifies her. He uses her for her own pleasure. So much so that he says, you know what, Uriah, let's put him on the front lines. Let's kill him off so I can take his wife. And then Nathan shows up. Nathan sh shows up telling the story about lambs. He's come to convict David of his issues in perpetuating adultery. And this is what it says, what Nathan says to him. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. This is when he reveals you are the adulterer in this story that I talked about. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hands of Saul. Go read 1 Samuel to see how God miraculously did that. I gave you your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you more. See, the lust in our hearts can swell up to a greed that consumes us. And so what's the antidote? How do we overcome this? It's right here. 
The antidote is realizing all the ways in which God has blessed us, has provided for us, has taken care of us. It is to be thankful for what God has given us instead of being greedy and selfish for wanting more. And the crazy line in this is God so richly blesses us that we think, oh man, I just need this, I need this. And God says, no, if you need more, I'm going to give you more. But you've been blessed enough. So let me bring you back to the wedding at this exclusive country club. Well, the day seemed, that wedding day seemed to be pretty well, but as you can tell, there were warning signs. I don't know all the details, but we watched a lot of it play out on social media. And let's just say the love didn't last. In fact, I don't know if I would define it with the word love. I might use other words like infatuation or, or attraction, um, but I don't know if love's the right word. A couple years later, or a few years ago, the couple got divorced. And when I think back on that wedding day, as fun as it was, as cool as it was, think about something interesting. That we can't lean on our human love. That there's a bigger love that we need to lean on. That, that we are literally leaning on the love of God. His loving arms. That we are emulating the love of God in our lives. That this is something that can sustain us and get us by. But to lean on our own lustful desires, that's not going to get us far in life. No, the only thing that's going to get us far in life is the love of God. And we can't forget that. We can't forget that the metaphor that God uses to describe his relationship with us, with humanity, is that of marriage. Most notably in the book of Hosea, God knows that Israel has broken their covenants, that they have broken their promises, that God has rightful biblical reasons for divorce. And this is God's response to it. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and in justice, in love, in compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. Jesus is the response of God's love. It shows us the lengths that God will go to to keep his covenant with us. And so for another week, I must come back to what happened just before the Sermon on the Mount. For 40 days, Jesus is out in the wilderness facing all the temptations that all the world has to offer. Satan is coming to him in bits and pieces in these different instances saying, here's this, I'll give you this, do you want this? And over and over again, Jesus turns them down. So why did Jesus do that? Why did he turn down all the lusts and greed, greeds of this world? Well, you need a mirror. You need to look in it. Jesus turned down all the lusts of all the world for you. Because he loves you. Because God wants a covenant relationship with you. He loves you so dearly that he dare not cheat on you. You are the object of his affection. That's what God says about you. See, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, that's the proposal. That's the invitation. That is the come 
Unite with me. Join me. It is the invitation into this new way of living. So a few weeks ago, we covered and we looked briefly at Revelation chapter 20. One of the greatest chapters in all the Bible depicts this time when God comes down again to live with us forever. When heaven and earth are united like they were back in the Garden of Eden once again. And if you pick up how it's described... It's described as a wedding. Because something spiritual happens at weddings. Weddings are great celebrations. Weddings are not just about a wedding day. It's not just about the two people getting married. Weddings remind us how the world ends. That the world doesn't end with bombs and war and genocide. The world ends with a wedding. That's what our weddings remind us of. Christian marriage at its core is a parable. It is two people living out what it means to live out this greater commitment of God's love. Marriage is never just about the couple. It is always about what God is doing in the world. When Adam and Eve, when Adam says to Eve, where she is weak, I am strong. He is pointing at something bigger happening in our lives. See, in the end, heaven and earth will come together like one flesh. Just like what happens in marriage. So we live into this calling in our lives. We live as Christians to choose love over lust. We are the salt and light of how to live relationships better. And are we always perfect? No. Do we fail? Do we have to overcome? Do we need forgiveness? Absolutely. But we are trying to show the world the best we can, a better way to live, a better value, more important, more meaningful relationship. So let me tell you about one of the most romantic movies ever, The Notebook. See, we love to watch The Notebook because there's these two young couples here. This young couple, these actors seem so beautiful. Apparently, Ryan Gosling is a hunk. I don't know that. All I can think about is how he's a total liability in coverage and facing the Giants. So, Ryan Gosling is not the romantic part of the movie. No. Spoiler alert. The romantic part of the movie comes from an old man who comes to visit his wife every day in a memory care unit. She might not know him. She might not recognize him. She might not understand him. But he reads a story to her every day. And at moments, on good days, it comes back. And she remembers about the love that they had for each other. Does that not sound like the story? Is this not the story that we come every week that we gather to be reminded of? Right? That though we have fallen, though we are short, that we have sinned, that God could divorce us, that God could be rid of us, that God would say, no, I'm coming to earth for you. I'm coming to die for you. I'm coming to live for you. Will you join me in this covenant relationship? And so the romantic part of the story is that he chooses her over and over again, while all her memories seem to be lost. See, our love for our spouses, our love for each other, is our way to show the world a better way to live. To love our spouse is to choose love over lust. 
to say these other people might be beautiful or whatever, but you are special to me. You are the object of my affection. We love each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, not to gain something from each other. We don't show up every Sunday saying, oh, how can I take from the church? How can I get something? No, we come every Sunday bringing this profound gift of each other to one another, sharing and loving one another because we are all fellow image bearers created in the image of this loving God. So we love. We love because we imagine the world a different way. Because we can talk about all the things online. We can talk about all the brokenness. We can talk about uh, all the, the sex that is breaking our society. But let's give us be something better to talk about. What if we could imagine and create a world where people are genuinely loved, where they have value and purpose and they belong? What kind of world would that look like? Where people aren't objects of our own fulfillment. Instead, they're human beings. Pray with me for that day. God, as we see all the brokenness and the hurt and the pain, thank you for giving us a better way to live. So we count on your spirit to increase our imagination that you would send us out of here to be salt and light, interacting with our families, interacting with each other, interacting with the world, interacting with our spouses in love showing people this new, better way to live. We ask that your spirit convicted of this, that it would help us overcome points of temptation and to seek a bigger picture and a better way of doing in the, these, living this life. So may we, in these moments that come up, in the obstacles and the temptation, have courage to follow these teachings of Jesus. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.